this kind of declaration of who Jesus is. He comes in on a donkey and, and they begin to lay these palm branches in front of him. And there's a reason that they use palm branches and everything that I won't get into. But um, essentially they were saying like, here comes the king to restore. Um, little did they know that he was coming to save the world from sin and rescue from sin. Um, they thought there was more of a restorative element to what he was doing just in terms of the people of Israel, but there was a way deeper uh, thing going on, a way bigger thing going on. And this idea of this bigger picture is, is part of what we're doing in this series. We've been uh, in this series in Jonah, and this will be the last week of it. Uh, and we are in the series of Jonah because of what Jesus actually said. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is talking with these Pharisees who were the religious teachers of that time. And they were people trying to essentially disprove Jesus a lot. They were angry with him. They uh, just couldn't handle like the things he was doing because he was really people that were following the Pharisees all of a sudden were like, ah, oh, this kind of Jesus thing seems better. And uh, he can do miracles and you guys can't. And there's all these other things that were happening in dynamics. And, and at one point these Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, will you give us a sign? We want, want you to prove that you are real. And Jesus turns to them and is like, I already gave you a sign. Like you already have a sign in Jonah. And so uh, we began to explore, why did Jesus say Jonah? Like, he, leading up to his death and everything, why did he say the sign that you have is Jonah? And so each week we've been uh, looking at different components in the story of Jonah. Uh, I'm not going to recap the whole series, but I will give you like a little like high view of it. And, and Jonah, we, we've, we've said that Jonah is the Forrest Gump of prophets, right? Jonah is what? Running. running. He's always running. He's always running. And we'll see uh, another way that he runs uh, today in, in the story. Jonah, um, God gives him a, a, a message. He says, like, hey, this is what I want you to do as a prophet of God. I want you to go uh, proclaim something to these Ninevites who are wicked people. And, and, and God says, go do this. And Jonah runs. He's like, no, I'm out, man. I don't want any part of this. And so we've seen his story. His running um, led to this kind of interesting storytelling throughout the book of Jonah where the author shows that, man, just what you thought would actually happen is always flipped upside down and that there's always a bigger picture happening. Like Jonah loses his imagination, but like, man, the wicked people of Nineveh have this huge imagination. Jonah is supposed to repent and he really doesn't. He has selfish prayers, but man, the wicked people of Nineveh and even the pagan sailors, like they all repent. And so we see this like back and forth in this story a lot. And so uh, we're gonna finish up the story of, of Jonah uh, here today. But how many of you guys have had an opinion about someone, heard the rest of the story, and you're kind of like, oh, my bad. Yeah, right? Everybody in this room thought someone, you got pretty judgmental, didn't you? Yeah, you did. And uh, you might even said something poor about that other person, right? And then all of a sudden, you heard a little bit more of their story, and you're just like, ah, oh, I mean, had I known that part, I would have seen the bigger picture, and I wouldn't have thought what I thought. And so what we see in the story of Jonah is this a constant state of trying to get us to see the bigger picture. So even when we read the story of Jonah, the author is trying to get us to put ourselves in the place and understand that, hey, uh, we're Jonah in this story, right? We're, we're not God, right? Amen? I know we like to think we are. I get it. But like we're not, right? And so we're not God. Um, and so there are, the other options are pagan sailors, wicked people of Nineveh, the fish, or Jonah. And so we, we are Jonah in the story and the author wants us to see like, all right, how am I like Jonah? And so each week we've been looking into that and we're gonna do that again today. And so in Jonah chapter four, uh, the Ninevites have just repented and then Jonah is responding to what happened in that moment. So in Jonah chapter four, it says this, uh, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. 
It seemed wrong what God was doing, and, and so he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestell by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, uh, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He says, now, Lord, look, look how he responds. Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Does this sound like a prophet of God? Does this sound like someone who, like, is so gracious and kind and loving to people. He's like, God, I knew you would do this. Like, I, and I hate that you're going to do this. I hate that you're going to be so gracious and compassionate and forgiving and kind to these people because they deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. I wish you would just do away with all of them, but I knew it. That's why I ran. I didn't want to be a part of this. I knew you were going to do it. Matter of fact, God, I wish you would just take my life and we have to see them being forgiven. Would anyone ever do that? Would you ever do that? Hmm. <laughs> have you ever wished, have you ever wished, you bunch of liars, have you ever wished that maybe someone would go away? The people that you really disagree with, have you ever thought, you know what, this country would be a better place if they weren't here? Hmm. Yeah, here we go. Right? So we see that even in this, that maybe we're a little bit more like Jonah than we thought. And we see, so Jonah, what's interesting, Jonah is responding to God with his very words. And so what's cool about the story of Jonah is each week I've tried to like share with you guys that, hey, this story ties in a bunch of other stories. We see uh, how uh, Jonah has a lot of similarities to Elijah. We see like there's some Cain and Abel like similarities. I didn't talk about that one. That's a secret one in there. But there's some Cain and Abel like elements in there. There's the Garden of Eden. When in Jonah chapter two, his entire prayer was like linked into these Psalms. And so there's all these like links going all over the place. This is why I continue to say, if you love really good writing, you should love the Bible. It's the best writing ever. I mean, it really is. And so, um, so this one in particular, Jonah is going back and he's actually quoting God himself in Exodus 34. So it ties into this old story of the people of Israel and their Exodus story. And Jonah's just repeating this. He's like, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, that's the one he gets really mad at, of rebellion and sin. And it seems like, like, like Jonah just says this about God. And so he's like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew this is what you're going to do, God. And so we see a little bit more about Jonah. Because Jonah didn't just run when God told him to go to Nineveh. He had already had this in his heart before. Jonah admits to it. He's like, long before you told me to go, man, I was kind of a judgmental jerk. Long before you asked me to do this very thing, I didn't want to go. I didn't want anything to do with them, and, and you knew that already, God, and that's why I ran. And what's interesting is jo Jonah is oversimplifying the realities of God. He's like, this is who you are, this is all you do, and you're going to forgive, you're going to be gracious, you're going to be kind. So think about the person that you have despised the most in your life. It's like what Jonah is doing in this moment, because he despises the wickedness of the Ninevites and what they've done to the Israel people and everything. And so if you can picture someone you've despised more than anyone else in your life, Jonah's sitting there and be like, why in the world, God, would you ever be forgiving and gracious and kind to that person? Why would you do that? And so there is a piece of this where we see kind of 
the foolishness of Jonah, but then we also resonate with the reality of Jonah, don't we? Because that hurt or that pain or that suffering you took on from somebody else and you, you begin to understand why Jonah might feel that way. So again, here's the tension in this story. And there's a bigger picture that's going on that we become a part of. But here's what's interesting. Jonah actually cuts off, when he was talking about God, he cuts off a part of what God said about himself. He says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so we begin to see that what God ends up saying about himself is like, it isn't that I'm just compassionate and slow to anger and kind and forgiving and all that stuff. I'm also just. So I'm going to take care of the wickedness. I'm going to take care of things. And people are, I'm going to justly interact with people. But Jonah forgets that part. And so he tries to oversimplify God and he tries to um, remove the nuance. God is and, and everything, and, and Jonah ends up not experiencing the fullness of God in this. And so his, his opinion of the Ninevites, his opinion of God, it, it dramatically shifts simply because he was upset that God was gracious and kind and forgiving, but also forgetting the reality that God is actually going to come and he's going to be just. And so it creates this viewpoint that rather than it being nuanced and appreciating the tension of something, Jonah just is just like, this is just how it is, and he kind of moves on. And I was thinking about this part of the story, and, and honestly, uh, you know, with the latest uh, shooting uh, in Nashville, and uh, Matt and I, in our, in our uh, podcast this week, we actually did a full episode, so I'm not going to like, talk too long about this, but I was processing that story in, in the midst of just taking notes for this week, and, and just thinking about how, man, like we, when you take a step back and you look at what's happening with our, like, children being shot and uh, teachers having to have like tourniquets in their classrooms and all these security measures and, and the amount of shootings that have happened in, in particular in just schools uh, in our country and it's pretty unique to our country. And there's something wildly wrong going on. And it's evil and it's wicked and in the midst of this, a lot of questions begin to come up. And, and what ends up happening is when a big thing like this happens, uh, typically people can quickly jump into a camp really quick. And what you end up seeing on you know, social media or on news outlets is like there's only like really two paths you can take in a, typically in a, in a conversation like this when discussing Nashville. It's like, oh, are you in the camp that's like, um, it's a heart issue? That's it. There's nothing else we can do. Like, it's just only heart, right? Which is where one of the congressmen actually from that area said, well, there's nothing we can do, which is like an atrocious and very unbiblical response. But like, it's like, oh, there's nothing we do. It's just a heart thing, right? But there's the other side. It's like, well, we just like legislate it all and like that'll fix it. But that's not true because like there's more nuance to it because it is also a heart thing. And so there's like multiple things going on here. And then you factor in so many other like, um, perspectives and, and elements that play into where, how does someone become that wicked? How does someone have, like, move in the direction of that kind of evil? What, per, like, what would make them do that? And then you see all of these different elements to the story and, and quickly you begin to like, realize, oh, this isn't as simple as a side might make it seem. And we start realizing, okay, like, hold on, let me, let me breathe for a second here. I'm like, okay. And it's like, well, where is God in all of this? And even in that, um, people can have a hard time because you start thinking like, well, if God is good, then why would he let this stuff happen? And this is like one of the 
most common questions that people ask. Like, if God is so good, why would, like, those three children be shot? Why would he allow that to happen? And it's complicated. It's complicated. You could take the route with God and be like, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. Everything is designed and it's planned out in a specific way and, and this is just how it's going to happen. But then with that, it's like, man, there's a lot to that. It's like, oh, I remember one time I was in college ministry uh, sitting with a student and she made this comment. She said, uh, she's like, everyone has always told me that God designed my life to be this way and, and like God works it out like in this way and it's just the way my life is supposed to be. Um, I was raped, so God's plan for my life was to be raped. And I was like, no, absolutely not. And you begin to see like, all right, even so, so was it God's plan for kids to get shot? No, that was not God's plan. But we're going to see, it's like, all right, so, so it's not just like this robotic thing that we're going through. And it's like, but where is God in it? Well, if he's good, where is it, right? Why does he just stop? But it's like, well, if he just stops every evil act, then we have no choice. And so that doesn't make sense. Then he's like, well, what if he just wiped out all of the evil in the world? And guess what? He would wipe out all of us too. And you say, well, why would I say that when we're going to get to what Jesus said about where this evil actually comes from? And so it gets really complicated really fast. And so it makes us have to pause and breathe for a second and say like, okay, where might I see God in this? Well, if I take God out of this whole entire conversation, what am I left with? And the answer is, there's no hope, nothing. And that evil just simply wins. If I leave God in it, then it's like, where do I see God in it? Well, you start seeing God in it when you see people with unbelievable grace and forgiveness towards one another. When you see people offering to help and people engaging and loving and, and helping families and entering in. When you see people trying to make a difference in some capacity around the you know, gun control issue, it's like how do we bring the kingdom of God into this conversation? You even see people saying things like this, you know, it's like, man, how do I, if I'm, if I'm focused on Jesus in the conversation around guns, you realize, oh, like, guns have nothing to do with Jesus, right? Nothing. I'm not saying guns are good or bad. I'm just saying that, like, in the conversation, it's like, hold on a second. I've got to, like, what does it mean to, like, focus on Jesus in this conversation? And it begins to change how we begin to encounter this. And then the kingdom of God looks different as we enter into this. And all of a sudden, you start seeing, oh, here's the goodness of God coming through. Does it mean that evil's gone? No, it, that won't happen until someday God rectifies all of this. But man, there is this piece. It's like, well, then how do we become the goodness of God? Because that's what we're supposed to be. And it gets complicated. And there's also the complication of the issue of like, if all we do is celebrate wickedness and evil in our country, then guess what you're going to get on the other side of that? Wickedness and evil. We have this saying on our staff, we're like, what gets celebrated gets repeated. Well, if all we do is celebrate what God is against, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to get all the things that don't look like God and don't image him. And listen, this happens within the church too. And so it's like hitting pause for a second and being like, all right, how do we see God in the midst of this? And where is God in the midst of this? And, and how do we engage? It's like, oh, this is, more complicated. And we've really got to start having the right view of how God might be interacting and start seeing like, oh, do I really trust in God and what he says he's going to do? When Jonah keeps going on, God responds to Jonah upon his anger and he says this. 
is it right for you to be angry? Sounds like a therapist, right? And, uh, which is great, because like the God, God's like, is it right for you to be angry? And, and, which is like a great question. It's like, where is your anger coming from? Where is it coming from? What is it that's driving that emotion inside of you? Like, where, that passion that you, like, where is it coming from? It's like, is it, is it right for you to question God like that? Like, we just said, who am I to deny what the Lord could do? Anything is possible. And God's like, is it right for you to be angry? And he continues on. He says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. So Jonah's running again. Right? So he's just running again. He says, there he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God, he provides a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Isn't it interesting? I mean, y'all, this is just like, Jonah has been a jerk to God, right? God provides him a plant. So here, the very thing, remember Jonah was just so mad about his grace, so mad about his forgiveness, so mad about how, God, how would God ever, and, and, and God's like, here's a little plant for you. And he's like, oh, this is nice. <laughs> Are we not the same way with God? It's like, so he enters, he's like, oh, this feels really good. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Which is interesting, right? Which chewed the plant so that it withered. I want to pause here for a second. Because here's what's happening. We see that like what Jonah is concentrating on is all the wrong things. His focus is just off. And this is why he can't see the Lord in all of what's happening around him. He's not fixated on the realities of who God is. He's fixated on the wrong thing, and so it colors the picture in the wrong way. So what he thinks is happening in the world around him is not actually what God wants him to see. It's just what he wants to see. And this is what happens, like, all the time with us right now. Like, I don't have to go over all the, like, the news stuff and everything. It's like, you guys all know that stuff. It's like, if you only watch one kind of thing, guess what's going to shape you? That one kind of thing, right? And we don't see what God wants us to see. We're just seeing what the news wants us to see. And so it's like, no. Like, how do I enter this in? It's like, like we see, like, all right, Jonah's, like, got the wrong focus. And he doesn't appreciate the, the right kind of things. And so everything that he should see, he actually can't see because it's colored by something else. That's what happens to us. And it can happen really easy and way easier than you think. I want, you, I want to show you how easy it can actually happen with this little video. Your television. The colors you are seeing are correct. Stare at the black dot in the center of this image. For the next few seconds, this dot is your whole world. Stare directly at the dot and don't look away. We promise you're about to see something you might find incredible. The image is about to change, but keep your eyes firmly on the dot no matter what. Ready? Do you see color? And if you move your eyes, does the image suddenly appear black and white? That's because this image is black and white. You guys are like, whoa. I didn't know my brain could do that, right? You can't even see a picture the right way. You see what God can do? 
So when our focus gets off, our brains do incredible things. And we can so easily see things that we didn't realize were actually there. We can attribute things to things that are like aren't actually true. And so what God is trying to get us to do is like, no, you got to get your focus on the right things so you aren't distracted. So you don't let other things around you color things. And listen, it happens to all of us. But it's important to keep recentering, recentering, recentering so that we can see the bigger picture. So the passage continues on. It says, but at dawn, the next day, God provides the worm which chewed the plant so that it withered, which is a common thing in scripture. It happens several other times where God provides something, a vine or something of that nature and sends a worm to take it away because guess what? You didn't appreciate the gift God gave. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Again, he's trying to get Jonah to like see this bigger picture. He's like, like yeah, like it's hot now. You know why it's so hot on your head right now? Because you refuse to listen to me. You refuse to see things the way I want you to see it. You refuse to engage the world around you the way I want you to. So now you had two shelters at one point, now you have none. And now you're feeling the reality of your decisions, and he continues on. He goes, it is. This is Joe's response. You think maybe he would be like, you're right, you're right, God. You're right. He goes, no, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. <laughs> we begin to see that the immaturity of, of Jonah coming forth so quickly. It says, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Who am I to deny what the Lord can do? And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, which just simply means they're misguided. And also many animals. This is where the story ends. It's like the, you know, have you ever heard someone say, Do, um, would you like to hear uh, a cliffhanger? Right? You respond, yes, and then they just. <laughs> this is what this is. Why? Because they, they want to say, like, well, well, what do you think should happen? And how are you Jonah in this story? Because, like, there are 120,000 people here that are misguided, Jonah. Do you not have the heart and compassion and grace to want to see them know the realities of who I am? When, when uh, Jesus comes in on a donkey and he rides in on this donkey and as he's coming in, uh, he weeps over the city, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Do you know why he wept over that city? He understood the reality of sin and what it was doing to people. He knew that there were a lot of people there that were about to crucify him that didn't fully understand what they were about to do. He understood that people needed to know him. And it made him weep. And so in the same way, for us, do we have that kind of heart? Man, when people are misguided, would we rather make them an enemy? Or would our heart be oriented to be like, oh man, 
I just want them to know who God wants them to be. I just want them to know what it means to be transformed in the image of God. I just want them to know the realities and the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. My heart breaks and, and weeps over that. When we begin to see, do we have that kind of heart towards the people around us? You see, it's interesting, and we can even do this with Jonah. Um, how many of you guys have ever judged someone off their worst moment? Yeah. And doesn't it stink when someone's done that to you? It's even interesting, like in a story like this with Jonah, like reading through it and studying it and everything, I was like, how many times I actually did that to Jonah myself? Like literally just being like, oh man, what a jerk. Because he was so far off. You know, and you think like, I was, I was just judging Jonah off his worst moment that just so happens to be in the Bible, right? And it's like, are we treating people in that same way? Do we have the bigger picture of what might be going on? Jesus actually talks a lot about this. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says this, but I tell you to love your what? Mm. And pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. So this means if you don't love your enemies, guess what you can't be? Children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on evil and the good and he sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Tax collectors even do that. And if you greet your, only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do, pagans even do that. It's like if you just hang around people that just think like you and act like you and vote like you, it's like pagans do that. That's not Christ-like. Anyone can do that. That's nothing. Jesus is like, you know, the most quoted verse of Jesus, quoted saying, most quoted saying of Jesus prior to Constantine was to love your enemies. Once Christianity and political powers got merged in together, that no longer was the verse that was most commonly quoted. But prior to that, it was to love your enemies because to love your enemies takes an incredible amount of grace and forgiveness and to want them to see the realities of who God is. It takes a lot. And to have a community of people and a culture of people that would do that, it's one of the reasons why the early church was so impactful economically and politically and socially. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, think about this for a second. Can you imagine if every Christian in America was just had this like, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm saying that that is true of me. And I'm dedicating my life to loving my enemies. Is that what happens now? Jesus even says this in Matthew 5, right before that he goes, but I say if you are even angry with someone, how many of you guys have been angry? You're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, anyone call anybody an idiot? It's probably like the kind version of what you said, Right? You're in danger of being brought before the court, meaning just judgment before God. And if you curse someone, not that anyone would have done that, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Now all of a sudden, the story of Jonah looks pretty light. When Jesus is like, hold on a second, let me just take this a little bit deeper. I want you guys to feel the weight of this reality. I want you to know what it's like to just what it's supposed to be to like really follow me. 
I mean, can you imagine today someone walking in here? Actually, I'm sure this has happened. Someone walking into church today and um, it might be the first time they've been in church in a long time. For one reason or another, uh, whether they were hurt by church or they don't trust Christians or maybe just their own personal choices have just like led them to be very far away. But something happened, like they just decided like, just here. Can you imagine if they walked into a place where people were judgmental and condescending? Into a place where they're like, oh, why would God ever forgive them? And you can see why someone would turn right back around and be like, forget that, I don't want anything to do with those Christians. But can you imagine the flip side of that? To walk into a place where people smile and be like, you are loved and welcomed here. God's grace is for you in the same way it was for me when I was a mess. Forgiveness is available for you, to, for you in the same way it was available for me this morning when I called someone an idiot when I was driving. That's the heart, right? It's the heart we should have. It's what Jesus is pointing to. Even in uh, Luke 23, when he's up on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. I don't know what they're doing, but they're crucifying Jesus. It's so evil. It's so. Jesus is like, they just don't know. They need, they need to know the reality of me. And for those that follow me, like that's my heart. Like that should be your heart. You want people to know the reality and the truth of who Jesus is. Yes, like we, we stand against sin and wickedness and evil. Absolutely. We talk about those things, but man, the heart is like we love our enemies. We, we desperately want people to know the reality and truth of Jesus. The problem is, is we become, we've normalized numbness. We become numb to the evil in this world. We become numb to the way people separate themselves from Jesus. We become numb, even as Christians, we become numb to the realities of how we act and think and talk that are actually very far away from the realities of what Jesus actually taught us to do. It's like, and maybe we should always be praying, God, I don't want to ever become numb to what you desire for me. You know, we think about the cross. Oh, Marianne, you can come back up. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting just processing this, processing this. Like, loving our enemies and loving those that disagree with us and having that kind of heart is actually a litmus test for our faith. Remember I said that come this next political season. But the litmus test for faith is how Christians are overwhelmingly lovingly, loving, kind, gracious, forgiving, and everything to those that disagree with them. And I'm thinking about, you know, we're about to, you know, we have this Seder this week on Thursday and then Friday, it's a good Friday, and thinking about this reality of the cross. And in the cross, is the epitome of suffering and pain. Um, it was built off of shame. That's what the Roman Empire wanted to do. Uh, so a cross, typically what would happen is they would place the cross and they would crucify people and they did this with Jesus 
roughly eye level, just slightly above eye level. So, so roughly where I'm at right now, this would be roughly the height of the cross. So that when you would walk on the thoroughfare, which people would have been able to do, and you just walk by these people who have been beaten and just bloodied and shamed. And what they're trying to do, what the Roman Empire was trying to do at that point in time was just simply just say, like, you come against us, this was what will happen, we'll erase you. And so people would just have to, you would like walk by them. Sometimes you walk by them like before they had their, you know, last breath and they'd be crying out. And you would hear the pain and the suffering and you'd hear all those things. And then for us as Christians, you know, for Jesus, it's like, well, Easter did come. I mean, like he resurrects from the dead, he overcomes sin, he overcomes pain, he overcomes death, he overcomes suffering. This becomes the reality of why we do what we do. But here's what I think has happened. I think uh, we don't identify with the suffering and pain and the reality of Jesus on the cross enough. And here's what I mean by that. I am all in on the joy of the resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. That is the center point of my life. But I was reflecting this week on the reality of like, you know, part of the reason I think I don't identify as much with the suffering and pain of Jesus is because like, I never, I didn't have to experience it in that way. The only thing that's semi-similar that has been in American culture was lynchings. Um, it was kind of set up in a similar way. Like when a crucifixion happened, um, they would gather around and people would cheer and it was almost like a party for those that were getting crucified. People would have meals and they would act like it was just like a little picnic. Um, the same thing used to happen in lynchings in our country. People would be lynched and they would be hung up there and people would, they would have posters to come and celebrate the lynching of black people. Because they were trying to erase them and they wanted to shame. I remember reading the book, uh, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which is a really good book by James Cone. And uh, I remember like talking about how like there's this element of one of the reasons that Jesus became so real to people was identifying with the suffering of Jesus and then being able to hold on to the fact that, whoa, that my Jesus suffered and died like this in the hope of his resurrection. And so it changed everything. Changed the connection. It changed how I began to see the reality and the truth of Jesus. And this week, as I was praying and thinking about today, I was just like, man, I think we've become too comfortable. And the reality is, is we can't actually celebrate the truth and the fullness of Sunday until we appreciate the reality of what happened on Friday in his death and suffering. Who am I to deny what the Lord can do? And so um, I want you guys to take out your communion elements and I, uh, you don't, if you don't want to take communion, you don't have to, but take them out. If, if you need communion elements, just raise your hand. Um, we've got some folks. Hopefully it will come around to you very quickly. Maybe. Um, just keep your hands up and we'll get to you. Uh, band, you guys can come up too, just so we're ready. 
Um, if you need gluten-free, maybe raise both hands so that they know that. I don't know. Um, I want you guys to bow your heads. You can just keep your hands up, but I just want you to just take a minute um, of just reflection and processing and start thinking through the bigger picture. Am I really someone who loves my enemies well? Go ahead and take the bread and the juice out. God, as we hold these things in our hands, um, this bread represents your body being broken for us, of suffering great evil and pain, whipping and beating and when people saw your body like this and saw the body of Jesus like this they thought evil had won and it was in that moment too that we realized that no matter what pain and what suffering and what evil we see around us or we experience personally the reality is, is that Jesus is with us every step of the way because he too was beaten and suffered and died. And so go ahead and eat the bread. This juice represents his blood upon that cross for the forgiveness of sin, established of this new hope that we have, that we experience in the redemptive, resurrected Jesus. And so go ahead and drink the juice. So God, this morning, we're going to sing one more song, and God, I pray that as we sing these lyrics of come, tear down the walls of built up, as we sing about um, that you're not done with us yet, that there's so much more, God, that you want to do inside of us, that you are not done with us yet. God, I pray that we would be that our posture is being open-handed in surrender to you. Our posture is one of utter humility to know, God, that you need to do more work in all of us so that we can see the bigger picture like you want us to, so that rather than trying to detach ourselves from people, God, we have the heart that you had, which was to long to see people understand and appreciate being made in the image of God. So God, I pray that there would just be a deep sense of conviction in here this morning that 
longs for more of your presence so that we can be shaped by you and nothing else. Will you stand and sing this last song?